But as always with glorious and beautiful things, uh, we must refresh ourselves in them and ask the Lord to open up our eyes to see afresh uh, the great things God would reveal to us there by his grace. So Matthew 2, page, oh, different from mine, Bible, but I think you see it there in the, in the bulls. Okay. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, give us grace to see your truth, to see your beauty and glory. Lord, to give ourselves up to you, to rejoice in you, to trust you, and to live out your love in our lives in every aspect. Oh, Lord, bless us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to ask this basic question, the title that you have in your bulletin, what do we learn from the coming of the wise men? I want to substitute that for this. What is your response to Jesus? What is your response to Jesus? And to get at that, we're going to, get, we're going to consider three sets of characters that exhibit at least pretty clear three different responses. And as we explore their responses, I hope it can help us uh, get a better handle on our response uh, to Jesus. So what is your response to Jesus? Are you, number one, troubled by him? By the way, for the kids, we do have three words, even tonight. Uh, one, the first one is uh, the ring. Uh, the next one is the cave-in. And the last one is the nations. The ring, the cave-in, and the nations. So you take King Herod, for instance. He had been the king of Judea, uh, Judea over 30 years, a very gifted leader with many accomplishments. 
But as he grew older, he was increasingly cruel and paranoid, killing, among others, his own wife and several sons he suspected of wanting to overthrow him. He heard this report of the wise men as a threat, and apparently so did the leadership of the city under Herod. King of the Jews? This has the makings of an uprising. We could all be overthrown. Now, you're not Herod. You're not the political leader of Jerusalem. But for different reasons, does Christ trouble you? Herod thought he would lose his position and honor. Does the thought of giving your life up to Jesus Christ trouble you? There's a lot about this passage that we could go into, but we're going to focus on these three responses You see, there's a similarity between Herod and us. He wanted control. We want control of our lives. By nature, we want to pursue our own happiness without any interference from God, and it's hard to give it up to God. We fight it. Like Bilbo Baggins at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. He had possessed the great ring of power for many years. Now he was old. He was leaving his home. It was time to give up the ring, but the ring clutched at his heart. He told Gandalf the wizard that he was leaving the ring with his nephew Frodo and was just about to step out the door when Gandalf said, Bilbo, the ring is still in your pocket. Oh, why? Yes. Strange. Oh, well. And so, you know, chats, talks, says a few more things, acts like somehow he took care of the ring And he starts out again. And so Gandalf has to say again, Bilbo. In the end, it was only with the greatest reluctance that Bilbo threw the ring down on the ground and walked away from it. Having control of your life is like that precious ring. You can be troubled by the thought of putting your life in God's hands because you don't know what he might do with you. You don't know what he might tell you to give up, what, where he might tell you to go. Or you may be troubled because you think there's no way that God would forgive me, could forgive me for everything that I've done and said and all that I've thought. Or you may be troubled because you think there's no way I could ever live in a way that pleases God. I'm just not going to even try. But the good news is that this Jesus, this king of the Jews showed his magnificent kingship in dying for his people on a Roman cross. That's how God does kingship. That's how God does sovereign rule. On the cross, he bore the punishment that we deserve for our sin. You can trust that one who died for you is going to do you only good if you give your life up to him. He died for your good. (coughs) Excuse me. You can be sure. I should never sing and preach. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) I never do. I was. (coughs) And you don't need to be troubled about your sins. It is God, the God man who bears away your sins. They're gone if you will trust in him. And they're gone forever. (coughs) And. All of your sins are forgiven, and it's not like, okay, you're clean now, but don't mess up again or you'll be back out again. No, through Jesus, 
You're brought into a permanent relationship of favor and love. God becomes your father. You become his child. And it's in that atmosphere of his favor that you grow and change and, yes, fail, which you will do. But you enter into this permanent relationship of favor because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And yeah, there is no way for any of us to live a life pleasing to God. But the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2 that it is none other than God himself who will work in you. And it takes God himself to work in us so that we really change. Only God can do it, but he will do it. He does do it. It says there, he will give you the desire and he'll give you the power to do what pleases him. So that in his hands you become God's handiwork, his art piece. A person who more and more joyfully loves God and loves people. So I'm saying, don't be troubled by this king. It would be sad if people in a cave-in were actually troubled when their rescuers broke through to save them. Jesus was born a human being in order to rescue you and me. Don't be troubled by him. Trust him. Go with him. Put yourself in his hands. The great rescuer God himself has come in the flesh. So, are you troubled by him? Or, secondly, are you apathetic toward him? Several scholars talk about the apathy of the chief priests and scribes. Hey, why don't they rejoice? They hear the message. Why don't they join the what, 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 king of the Jews? We're going with you. Why don't they run to Bethlehem to worship or at least check it out? They do nothing. Are you apathetic toward Jesus? You know, apathetic, the definition, having little or no emotion or feeling toward Jesus. Little emotion or feeling toward Jesus. This is certainly the case of many people outside the church. Well, most people outside the church but it can be a problem with those of us either raised in the church or maybe who've been in the church a long time. Sometimes we actually see the excitement of, and joy of someone newly converted and we're like, what's he so worked up about? Oh, she'll get over it. You'll get used to it. Like we had couples telling us right after we were married and we were pretty fired up about each other and they said, it'll pass, it'll pass. Thankfully, it hasn't. <laughs> Whew. Don't need to look at her while I preach. Okay. <laughs> now she'll kill me because I've embarrassed her. <laughs> but back to the cave-in, right? You've been trapped in there for days. You're starving. You're dying of thirst. The rescues break through the wall and all you say is, oh, hey. And they're there to save you and you just walk away because you don't even care. You just walk deeper and deeper into the darkness until you die. Dear friend, apathy will kill you. 
Apathy will kill you. You know what Paul says about this? He says that the evil one, Satan, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe so that they cannot see the magnificence and beauty of Jesus Christ. And that's like saying you're apathetic. Like the beauty's there, it's like a sunset, but you don't see it. So you don't care. But here's the good news. Paul says in that same place that he and all Christians were blind like that at one time. We all are born that way, living in darkness. So what happened? And Paul goes back to creation itself and he says, the one who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts the beauty and glory of Christ. This is in 2 Corinthians 4. So as Jesus healed blind people, so God must heal our blindness and apathy. So you don't, it's not as though, well, I'm just going to start not being apathetic. God has to save us and rescue us and enable us to be passionate about him. And it's the only proper response to a God who's taken flesh to die for our sins. So, are you troubled by him? Are you apathetic toward him? Or, like the wise men, do you joyfully worship him? Now, in spite of this popular song, We Three Kings, uh, these were not kings. Actually, they're counselors to kings. It actually says in Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel, who himself was a Jew, was put in charge of all the wise men or counselors in Babylon. They're teachers of science and religion, and a major part of what they did was astronomy or maybe astrology, which it's wild that, that the Holy Spirit would give witnesses that dabbled in the stars, which shows you this is an authentic witness. They wouldn't have made this up. You'd think they'd be embarrassed. I know the wise men came, but, you know, they're dealt with stars. Let's don't bring that in here. No, this is what happened. This is what happened. So maybe through Daniel and over the years that parts of the Bible have been passed down and some of these wise men laid hold of the Bible, maybe even Daniel, the book of Daniel itself, which talked about coming king and kingdom. Maybe they had that and, and that's where this notion came, this idea, this passion. But when the star appeared, we really don't have any idea of how they pieced together from the star and what they knew about the Bible that convinced them without a doubt the king of the Jews had been born. But it happened. So they go to see the baby king. They leave work and family and home and community to follow a star for many months, up to a thousand miles perhaps, probably with servants and soldiers. It was a costly, sacrificial undertaking, but nothing would stop them. They had to see the king. Apparently, the first message of the star was basically, go west, get to Jerusalem, you'll get further instructions there. They knew they had to go to Israel. They go to the capital. And when they find out it's in Bethlehem, they were on their way when the star reappeared. And this time, 
it looks like the star is saying, I'm going to take you by the hand. I'll take you there myself. They were going to see this king and they rejoiced. And it led them eventually to the very house where he was. And that's why I agree with those scholars who say this was probably not a star because how could that work, a star? But it was a miraculous work of God and somehow to bring a star-like light that came over the, the house itself. Now, they worshipped him because somehow they knew he was more than just an earthly king because they served earthly kings. They knew what that was. Why would they come all this way to honor just one earthly king over another? And why honor the king over the Jewish people? In some way, they understood this was a king for the whole earth, a king for them, the king the whole earth needed. These Gentile wise men represent the whole earth coming to Christ, worshiping his king and offering them up to this king. And here Matthew is declaring that Jesus is Lord of all peoples. And through the wise men, the nations come to him when he's a young child. And this even anticipates the last verses in Matthew where Jesus tells his followers, go to the nations and make disciples. But here at the first, the nations are coming to the Christ child. So the question is out there, do you and I seek him? Do we trust him? Do we worship him and give ourselves up to him? By offering these incredibly valuable treasures, it's a way of saying we give ourselves to you, O king. But you see, don't think, hey, they worship him. Do you worship him? And that be the end of the story. How do you think these pagan wise men became worshipers of the true king? It's because God worked in their hearts. It's because God rescued them from what otherwise they would have lived out as pagans apart from the true God. But he rescued them from their sin. He drew them so that they gave themselves up to the true king. Only God can do that for them. Only God can do that for you and me. It's salvation we proclaim. Not go fix yourself. Not go out and you be worshipers too, like the wise men. No, we have to be rescued, saved by Jesus Matthew structures this story so that verses 5 and 6 are the most important where we find the promise that from Bethlehem will come a ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. I'll say he'll shepherd his people. As Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He cares for us and protects us by giving his very life for us. It's that same love that cares for us every day and everything we do. That's the kind of shepherd that's proclaimed here in the whole book of Matthew. 
as the New Testament unfolds, it's because he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross that he's exalted above all authority in this world. His humility so perfectly and beautifully expressed the love of the Father. He's exalted as king over all. He is the humble ruler who gave himself for humanity. Dear friend, this shepherd ruler, he's yours for the taking. I mean, you know, somebody hands you a big gift and says, it's just yours. It's yours for the taking. Receive it. Receive this Christ. In him, all your sins can be forgiven. In him, you can be restored to God. You can belong to God. He can belong to you forever. In him, you will be constantly renewed into the image of Christ. So, no middle ground here. Who are you going to identify with in this story? Right? You're going to be walk out of here troubled by Jesus? You're going to walk out of here apathetic toward Jesus? Or do you want to walk out of here a worshiper of Jesus? Cry out to God. Let us all cry out to him that we will rejoice in this shepherd ruler now and forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise you and honor you that you have given your own son for us. That he would die for his people that he would rule his people and rule all things for his people so that no matter what we go through in terms of loss and suffering in this world, it is the mighty King Jesus who rules over all and uses every single thing for our good and his glory. Oh Lord, enable us, enable some here who have never put their lives in the hands of Jesus Enable them, even now, to say, Lord, I take you as my Savior, my Shepherd, my King. I entrust my life into your hands. Oh, do it for your glory and honor, we pray. Amen.